today we are wrapping up our all-in uh, sermon series. And this uh, sermon series has served us as a church in a few ways. It's a vision sermon series, but also a few weeks ago we kicked off our capital campaign to renovate our basement. And, and what we, so what we've been doing very specifically for the past four weeks is answering the question of what does it look like for a church to go all-in for the way of Jesus for the good of Westchester. And each week we've tackled what it means, like one aspect of of an answer to this question. So one week was we are all in with Jesus. Another week we are all in for Westchester. Last week we are all in with one another. And today we're thinking about what does it that we are all in for the next generation. And each of these uh, priorities is meant to help you imagine and to think and to dream about what we can do as a church with a fully usable space once we renovate our basements. And one area and that we will see immediate results, immediate benefits in is our children's ministry. It's fun to think about. Andrew Medello, who led our time of, of confession earlier, uh, he shared that he's just getting excited imagining the children, one being my son Liam, chasing all your, your kids, uh, running throughout the basements. Like, we'll have the choice of, of having both kids' church classes downstairs as opposed to having one right there and one right next door. But how else could we use it? And so today we're thinking about what it means for us to be a church that's all in for the next generation, and we, Scripture is guiding us. And in fact, if I, as I reflect on uh, Stan's uh, encouragement to us as parents, like, it's clearly that he was clearly rooting his encouragement to us from Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 9. I'm reading from the ESV and you can follow along in the worship guides or on the, the walls beside me. So here is God's word from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Man, let me pray for us one more time. Father God, we thank you for your word and be with us now. Uh, we ask for your spirit to be with us now that uh, your spirit would convict us, that your spirit would uh, show us your word, but your spirit would also uh, work in our hearts, transform us, conform us into your image, that we would be more like your son, Jesus Christ, and encourage us as we seek to follow you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Several years ago, the church I was serving at in Pittsburgh was invited to have a conversation with the church whose building we were renting. And the, the, the conversation that we were having, that we were invited to have, was the possibility of merging these two congregations. Here is this church plant, the church that I was serving at, uh, and it was in many respects similar to Ironworks, with a few key differences. We were young. We were younger than Ironworks, in fact. We had no gray hair in the congregation, and in fact, Jennifer and I had just celebrated our fourth anniversary, and our fourth anniversary marked that we were the fourth oldest marriage in the church. 
our young church was hungry for mentors and grandparents. And so we were really excited about this possibility. And so as when, the, when we were having this conversation, it came time for the older, more established church to share why this was an appealing conversation to them. And one gentleman put it this way. He said that we have read all the books, we've gone to all the seminars about church growth, about meeting, reaching the, the next generation. We've tried everything that they have told us to. We have gotten rid of the organ, we've done this, we've done, we've done that, and nothing is working. And as we look at your young church, you're doing everything they say not to do, like use liturgy. You are a, a, you are a thriving, youthful church. What are we missing? And as I've been reflecting on that question over the years, is that there's something that I do believe that the American church as a whole is missing about reaching the next generation. And very specifically, and like this is a hard conversation in a sense, because what generation are we talking about? Like I'm a member of the, the millennial generation, and some of you are Gen Zers, and I don't have I have no idea what Toby and Liam and Johnny and the other newborns and young children in this in this church are. We don't have a name to define their generation, and so what's hard that's a that's a challenge to this conversation, and and as we think about, but as I reflect upon that question, what, the one thing that I know that the American church has been missing is that. Uh, millennials. It's just understanding certain things about our generations. One thing to understand about millennials, that's the majority of our church, in fact. Millennials have been sold something their entire lives. They know when they are being marketed to. And when something, uh, when something is, in fact, not authentic, when it's not real or honest or genuine. And the one thing that actually establishes authenticity is God's grace. And this is what the world needs. The world needs a church that understands God's grace, that, that centers its life on God's grace and enables that church to be honest and to, re, and to be real and to speak freely about their, both their sin and God's work in their lives. And so today, as we are thinking about what does it mean for Ironworks Church to be all in for the next generation, we need to be a church that gets and understands God's grace and lives out of the gospel in our own lives. And so if you are a note taker, if you're, if you're looking for an outline uh, this morning, the outline that I have for us is gospel-centered, gospel need, and gospel culture. Gospel-centered, gospel need, and gospel culture. And in the New Testament letter of Galatians, Galatians 2.4, Paul tells us of this moment where he confronts the apostle Peter. He is, in fact, challenging Peter for not living in step with the gospel. Peter, he was a Jew, and he was living like a Gentile, but as he was preaching the gospel to Gentiles, he was, in fact, requiring Gentiles to live as Jews. In other words, Peter was being a hypocrite. He was putting on a mask, and Peter, excuse, Paul says to Peter, you're living out of step uh, with the gospel. That hypocrisy is out of step with the gospel. And in fact, Peter is living a life that was defined by a racial and cultural uh, pride or supremacy. He believed in the gospel, but was not living out the ethical or social implications of the gospel. And so Paul challenges and calls Peter out on that. 
And the truth is, when Christians live out of step with the gospel, then we are in fact being hypocrites and our witness suffers in the world. Author Anne Rice said in an interview 10 years ago this, that Christians in America have lost all credibility as a people who know how to love. Christians in America have lost all credibility as a people who know how to love. Around the same time, Barna, an organization that studies Christian trends within the church or trends within the church, found that millennials particularly found Christians to be hypocritical, uncaring, anti-gay, sheltered, and disconnected from the world, too political and too judgmental. When this study was done, that was 15 years ago, but that public idea about the church still stands today, perhaps even is cemented today. But where did that come from? Where did that come from? Biblical scholar D.A. Carson, I quoted him last week, but he provides a helpful case study, a helpful case study in the Mennonite tradition. And he points out that historically, one generation of Mennonites believed and identified with the gospel and held that there were social and economic and political implications arising out of the gospel. In other words, a very good thing that when you live out, when you understand and believe and cherish the gospel, you understand there's ethical and social implications arising out of following Jesus. It's a very good thing. And so that's one generation that who believes and cherishes the gospel. Then the next generation comes along. They simply assume the truthfulness of the gospel and identify not with the gospel but with the social implications like pacifism, political dissent, or other things uh, unique to the Mennonite tradition. But then the generation after that, the grandkids come along, their children's children, and they end up denying the gospel. They don't care about the gospel. What Carson is providing for us in this case study is that a large portion of the church is identifying not with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not centering with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they're identifying with other ethical or social implications of the gospel. And he's pointing out that the American church is in, is in grave danger of sliding into the, the third category where people are, in fact, denying the gospel. That's what D.A. Carson is pointing out for us. And so the question of this case study uh, for our own lives that arises for us is that do we identify with the gospel of Jesus Christ or do we identify with one of the social implications of the gospel? Do we identify with King Jesus or do we identify with a different cause? Put it differently. What excites you about following Jesus Christ? Whatever excites you about Jesus Christ is what you are going to be known for and is what your faith is going to be known for. And we live in a cultural moment where the formal theological word that literally means gospel-centered, it's a beautiful word with a beautiful meaning, but as soon as I use this word, you're going to be thinking of a political camp. If I use the word evangelical, we think about politics. And that's exactly what D.A. Carson is pointing out for us. And D.A. Carson leads an organization as a gospel coalition and teaches at one of the largest evangelical seminaries in the country. 
And so sadly and tragically, Christians are known for what we are against more than what we are for. And I ask these questions of us about, like, what is our faith known for? What excites us about following Jesus Christ? I ask us these questions because the urgent need of our day is for us to regain the credibility and reputation of being a people who know how to love others well for God's glory and so that the good news is unmistakably clear in our churches. And as Christians, we do not follow Jesus Christ because of our religiosity, our doctrine, or even our morals and good works. We follow Jesus Christ for one reason and one reason only, and that's because he first loved us. That's why we are told that, you, that I loved you first. God came to us when we were children of wrath, and he made us into his children that where he adopted us. And so... This is what grace is for our, our life. And what uh, grace truly means, unearned favor of God. And so what grace means is that we do not have to perform for God. We do not, that God is not our boss, that we, God is not our employer. Instead, God is our Father. By the way, that's a preview for next week's sermon. When we think about the Lord's Prayer, our Heavenly Father, who, our Father who art in heaven, God tells us that he, above all things, is our father. And so we are to understand that when we think about our faith, that is the central identity about our faith. Paul puts it this way, that when he describes the gospel of Jesus Christ about his death upon the cross where he was crucified for you, he says this is of first importance. And so what I'm describing for us is that we need to be a church that centers on the gospel, that we are a church that centers on grace, that we identify with the gospel above all things, and we live out the implications of that gospel in all of our lives. So this raises the question, how do we regain the reputation of being a people of love? Well, the first thing I just, I'm pointing out for us is that we need to live, center on the gospel and live that out. And in fact, truly in fact, the answer about what does the next generation need is actually the thing that you need most desperately in your life. My son needs this from me. That ex and our children need this from us. This is exactly what Stan was getting at in his encouragement to us that the 16,800 students at Westchester who don't go to crew large group on Wednesday nights need this. And we need this from one another. And what I'm talking about is that we need to understand that we have a gospel need, that we have need of the gospel. And this brings us to our second point, that we have a gospel need. And, if you, and really it's gospel need and expectation. Let me explain that. Gospel need and expectation. Our culture, and we do this too, we look at the need as a weakness. Just think about a need that you have in your own life. It could be your health. And so uh, where due to your health, you are challenged to, to do something physically. It could be due to an injury or because you uh, have, are, are sick. Or perhaps you're just a, a young parent and, you ha and you're exhausted and you need someone to go to the grocery store. We have all these needs. And, but the reality is, these are also incredible opportunities for us. 
that if we actually turn our needs outward to community and upward to God, then we're going to see him do something powerful in our lives. So in other words, our needs can also lead to an expectation. Psalm 32, and this sometimes serves as our call to confession, points out that when we admit our brokenness to God, that is actually cathartic. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I acknowledged my sin to you, and, and I did not cover my iniquity, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I love how one of our members, Sarah Brown, puts it. She says that, she said to me once that you will never know how much God can do in your life until you feel your need of him. And this is where we need to think about the hard challenge of God's grace to us. Because God's grace means that you are more loved than you could ever imagine. But you're also, we, not we, this is all me here too. But we also are more sinful than we realize. We desperately need God's grace in our lives. And God loves giving grace. James tells us this, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves and God will exalt you. So as we think about this, look, reflect on your own life. Do you realize just how desperately you need Jesus? As one hymn that we often sing says, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. We need Jesus. We need God. We need his grace in our lives. But what is it that we need Jesus to do in our lives? What is it that we are told to expect God to do in our lives? And so in other words, our needs give way to an expectation. Not only do we have a, a gospel need, but we have a gospel expectation. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In other words, right here we see that God brings revival and renewal in our hearts. Where we just read in uh, James a moment ago that God exalts the humble. Think about the beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So those who are spiritually poor and aware of their spiritual poverty, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of God. That's a promise. When we acknowledge our need, there's also a transformation. When you acknowledge your need for him, when you truly understand that you are desperate for God's grace, then you can expect him to be at work in your life. And this is always out of grace. And this, so in other words, this grace is actually inviting us to stop trying to earn God's love and enjoy God's love that's made known to us through the cross. Here's an example. Here's, here's an example of this, and it's a, it's a caricature uh, based on, it's a true story, but I'm shortening this story for, for just right now. This one man, he grew up in the church, and he went to a Christian school and then also to a Christian college. In his life, uh, he always was struggling by, with a sexual sin, and it defined his life, in fact. He tried to manage his sin, white-knuckling, just trying so hard to defeat it, relying on his own energy and even punishing himself. And his church tried everything that they could possibly do 
in a very legalistic fashion. And so when he moved away, he went to a different church that was characterized by a different spirit or an attitude away from legalism and more to a gospel centrality that I'm describing. And so months after he was there, he just broke down in tears as he was reflecting on the Lord's Supper because he was realizing in that moment that he is loved by God. And at that moment, he went to his pastor and, and invited his pastor to speak into his life. And then as the months came by, he was able to go, go to his pastor and say, I've been free of my addiction for three months, six months, nine months. I'm now celebrating a, a year. And in, so the difference in his words is that in this church, he was free to admit that he is a sinner loved by God. He did not have to be ashamed of confessing that he was a sinner. Instead, he was free to admit that he was a sinner who was loved and is loved by God. And as we think about our own lives, that our religiosity, our moralism, will never change your life in the way that God promises us transformation. Moralism, legalism, religiosity will never train, change our lives in the ways that we truly want to grow and change. Guilt will not change your life. Shame will not change your life or transform you. It's only the grace of God that changes our hearts and our lives. And it's, it's, it all begins with the fact that God loves you and delights in you, and that love empowers you to change. This is actually the, what the next generation needs from every single one of us. The, the next generation needs us today in this moment to understand that we have this desperate need for Jesus. And when we understand this individually, but not just individually, but when we understand this as a community, the church becomes a safe place to admit your need for Jesus. When, when the church is safe, when it's truly a refuge, then the church will begin to see God doing incredible things in our midst. And that's something we can expect. Lives will change because we are admitting our desperate need for Jesus Christ. And when we live out of this posture of need and expectation, God heals us individually. And since God does his work within a new family, within community, a culture emerges. This is our third point, gospel culture. Leslie Newbegin, uh, I'm quoting some guys who you've heard me quote before. Leslie Newbegin put it this way. The most powerful hermeneutic, which is a fancy word for interpretation, the most powerful hermeneutic of the gospel is a church family where the church is willing to lay down their life. If you want to see a church that truly understands the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that church is going to embody Jesus' love. And as we read about in Deuteronomy 6, this is Moses' vision for the Israelites. He calls the entire assembly of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Moses is actually saying, love God with everything within you and show that, need, that love, but also show that need to your children and to your children's children. And so the, the vision that Moses has for us is to live out, live out the love of God that we are called to. And when you look at the church in the, the New Testament, 
there is a unique dynamic to the, that characterizes the church. There's this incredible growth on Pentecost when Peter preached the gospel and we said this covenant promise is to you and your children. In that moment, in that, on that day, God added 3,000 people to the church that one day. There's this incredible numerical growth, but there's also this incredible spiritual growth that characterizes the church as well. And we, and we see this all across the pages of the New Testament where we also see Jews sitting down with Gentiles. Where like, like I know I picked on Peter earlier on in the, in the, in the, in the sermon, but the mo- one of the most fascinating moments to me in the entire book of Acts is when Peter is at a, 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 a man's house and he is ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And Peter has this vision, eat these things. And Peter's like, no. And it's like God says, do not call anything that I have made common or unclean. We, and like it's incredible. We, and then the capstone is the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon the, the Gentiles. Like that is really the most incredible, one of the most incredible things to me in the book of Acts. But the point that I want to draw out is that the, a new community that's characterized by spiritual growth and change is going on. Where we see Jews sitting next to Gentiles where we see those ethnic and cultural barriers being broken down for us. And Francis Schaeffer, I'm, I'm going to mention him twice in the next few moments, and this is uh, the quote of, for reflection today. He, give, he attributes this dynamic to two things, belief and practice, proper belief and, and practice. The church held their beliefs, they they. they they held on to their confession of faith within community, and they did so publicly. So in other words, their beliefs were lived out, and other people noticed how they lived out their faith. And this is something that only happens by God's grace, and I don't want to skip over those words too fast. That this only happens by God's grace, and we, we have no reason to boast. We do not follow Jesus of anything that we did, So why would we dare think that we are the ones who are making the church and building the church? Something happens when when the church community lives out their shared need of the gospel, and that's God creating a gospel culture. Here are Schaefer's exact words. If the church is what it should be, young people will be there. But they will not just be there sitting in the pews. But they will be there with the blowing of horns, the clashing of loud cymbals, and they will come dancing with flowers in their hair. Now, just to put this in perspective, Schaefer like, was doing ministry from the 40s up until his death in 84. He's talking about hippies right here. They will, the hippies will be there if the church is what it should be. And yet... As we, think, as, we, as we think about this, what Schaefer is telling us is that our confession of faith matters. What we intellectually believe is essential to the Christian faith, but just as important, just as essential to our faith is the culture of our church family together. When we center on the gospel of grace when we recognize our desperate need for God's grace in our lives, uh, Gospel culture will be created, and Schaefer's words are prophetic to us. The young people will be there. Let me end with a story, and again, this is uh, Francis and Edith Schaefer. I said last week, just to point this out, Francis Schaefer's book, The Mark of a Christian, is like the most formative book of my life, so expect this. I like Francis and Edith Schaefer. 
the sh- the, like, here's, a, here's the story of their life. They became leaders within the church during the last, part, the last half of the 20th century. Um, at, so that's after World War II. And they became leaders when they left America to go to Europe to help rebuild the church in Europe after it was decimated by war. But before they did that, they pastored a church in Germantown, Philadelphia, Grove City, Pennsylvania, and St. Louis. And, and so while he, they were ministering in all these communities, they were doing children's ministry. And they were some of the first people that would start doing VBSs, vacation Bible schools. And just want to point out, like, they've been going on for 80 years. But they were doing them, some of the first people doing them. And so as they were administering in, in St. Louis in the 1940s, 250 children came to the, these vacation Bible schools. And last uh, fall, my friend Tim was uh, sharing this story that, that I, I'm pointing out to you. He's sharing this story with his presbytery, and he's, he's pointing out, he's like, hey, here's a, a newspaper article of the Francis Anita Schaefer leading vacation Bible schools at a church just right around the corner from where we are at. And he was interrupted. While he was preaching, he was interrupted by another preacher. The preacher's interrupting the preacher. And the, and the pastor shouted, I was one of those 250 children. So due to the Schaefer's ministry to children, this one child became a missionary to Peru. Just think about that. So when the Schaefer's went to Europe, and started their ministry there called Labrie. While it was not a college ministry per se, an entire generation who went to go backpacking in Europe decided to go to Labrie. And, and so the Schaefers continued to shape an entire generation, and they shared their lives. And Edith would write in her, one of her memoirs that not a single piece of her wedding china remained intact because of the hospitality they practiced. So the people whom they ministered to in the, through that season at Libri have gone on to be college professors as they were, or many other vocations. And so here are the shapers who are living out the Christian faith, investing in children. And at this presbytery meeting, this man became honorably retired, which is the formal Presbyterian way of saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. So this man went to Peru to be a missionary. The the Schaefer's continue ministering and investing in the next generation. And I have professors who were personally mentored and challenged by the Schaefer's for just being in their house for four days. My point is, as we think about this as a church, what does it mean for us to be all in for the next generation? Quite honestly, that means where we think about investing in our children and taking efforts to invest in our children. It means for us to look outward as well and think about what does our community need? How can we invest in the local university? How can we invest and be all in for the, the, the next generation? And, and, and as the challenge I'm laying out for us, the answer to that question is that the first thing for us to do is to regain our credibility as a people who know how to love. And that the answer to that question is that we desperately, desperately need Jesus Christ. We have no reason to boast. And friends, the wonderful truth is it is by grace that we have been saved. That is, that is an incredible message to us. And so friends, my prayer is for the next 
years of our, of our life, that we would always center on the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we identify with the God's grace because we have no reason to boast, because we are identified in him. We are hidden with him. That is the promise of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your good word to us. We thank you for the love that you have shown us in your son, Jesus Christ, and, and how uh, we are saved by grace and by grace alone. Father, we thank you for that love. And so we ask that in the coming uh, days and weeks and months ahead that you would help us to live out of that gospel need. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.